Uh, listen, we are in First Timothy chapter 4 this morning, so go ahead and turn to there. I just want to say a special welcome to those who are outside right now. I already waved at you, but good to see you guys out, out there. We have people worshiping in the warmth of this place. We have people just through that wall, and we have people that are uh, visiting via YouTube, both in the current time moment live right now, and probably people who will see this days or maybe even weeks from now. So welcome, everyone. Good to have you guys. Uh, Norman Rockwell paintings um, are sold regularly, and uh, there, was a, there was a little um, pocket of three uh, paintings that were, that were sold in 2013 for $58 million. And one of the paintings uh, by far was the star of the show. It was the masterpiece called Saying Grace. Saying Grace sold, catch this, for $46 million. That was a new record for Rockwell paintings in 2013. I wonder if you've ever stopped and thought um, about why we pray before meals. Christians sometimes call this saying, will you say grace? Uh, Is this just a comforting relic from some other uh, time period like Norman Rockwell? Is it sort of a cultural habit that's just been passed on from Christian to Christian to Christian without much thought? Um, Or is there something more going on? Here's what I discovered in studying for today's sermon is I have a chapter and verse. There's actually many throughout scripture of why this might be a good idea, but I have chapter and verse on why this might be a great idea to stop and pray, to stop and say grace, um, even in a public place where other people are kind of looking at you curiously to stop and do it. I say it may be a good practice because of this. What lies behind our behavior is vital, isn't it? The same thing can be done by two different people. The same thing can be done by the same person on two different days and have totally different motives. Two totally different things is going on. Why? Because there's an inner world that we inhabit as well as an external body that we inhabit. Here's my thesis this morning. And basically the way I'm going to walk through, the way your notes are laid out is we're going to take this yellow sentence and we're just going to walk through it. Um, But my thesis is this, that we combat lies by celebrating truth every day. We combat lies by celebrating truth every day. You are at war, and your enemy is unseen, but very real, hence the word combat. Lies come from false teachers who, duh, teach false truths. They're called lies. We expose the lie and prove them true by celebrating and using the good gifts that God gave to us. And finally, this is as daily as marriage and food. Okay? If you're the type of person that checks out, I just gave you the entire sermon in about 40 seconds. Okay? Uh, if, you're, if you're ever watching this, you can go back and say, what was this whole sermon about? That was it. Okay? We're going to unpack what I, what I just said. The whole big uh, word I do that's sort of the biggest thing on the screen right now is this. The key moment of any wedding covenant, I love that it's your one-year anniversary. That was a really fun celebration. By the way, that was the Adam Trio. That was a family affair that we just got to have lead in worship. So thank you very much, uh, Chuck and Sharon, for getting married, producing children, and having them married. That's a really good thing. We miss you guys. It's really, really good to have Jonathan and Liz back with us. They were uh, just a really present part of our church for a very, very long time. So blessings to you and Hollister. But the words I do are the exclamation mark of a wedding ceremony. And the exclamation mark of a wedding ceremony 
is a proclamation of commitment to receive this spouse as provision from God till death do us part. These words, I do, can be an ongoing renewal of this vow. Just this daily reminder of the good gift that God has given it to us. We're going to come back to that at the very end. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Ready? Here we go. Let me read it for us, and then we'll kind of walk through it. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So just by way of reminder, we are in a letter. We took a break from 1 Timothy last week. Thank you, Matt, for preaching. Great job. Got to experience it via YouTube. We're in this letter that's being written to a people who are in crisis. Why are they in crisis? Quite simply, because the truth has been replaced with life. A life is in crisis. A home is in crisis. A business is in crisis. Community is in crisis. Certainly a church is in crisis. When what is true is replaced with lies. That's what's going on. We just came off of, this was pre-Christmas, so a while ago now. Great is the mystery of godliness which has been revealed to you. Mystery here is not mystery who can know. Mystery is the secret revealed. God has told us what the mystery of godliness is. This is at the end of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. Remember that? And he goes on to list six things, catch this, that God has already accomplished. You ever get confused about the gospel? Remember, that's this. It's what God has already done, not what we ever do for God. That's a really common sticking point for people, not understanding the offer that God has. So the mystery of godliness are these six things that God's already taken care of. The battle is already won. We just sang that. Here's where the problem comes. There are many people who do not know the path to life. They may have heard it. They don't believe it. They don't receive it. They're not walking it. They do not know the path of life. They do not know the truth. And yet, they are speaking, teaching, promoting themselves as if they do. And people are buying it. Many people. So people say, this is the way to life. People come after them and are following them to their certain destructive Here's where it's most destructive. Ready? When it comes packaged in people who name the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I know the path to life. Follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that sounds biblical. Let's do this thing. They're leading in exactly the opposite direction of where life is. That's what we're going to get to. All right. So first up is this word combat lies. This is from verse one. Some will depart from the faith. I use the word combat really strategically because you are at war. The story that you find yourself in is a war story. The sooner you acknowledge this, the better off you will be. 
It will actually clear up loads of things for you once you understand life is a battle. Life is a war. Funny because we actually just saying a mighty fortress is our God. Why do you need a fort? Why do you need a fortress unless you're at war? At Club Med, you don't have a fortress, right? You have a little cabana with like a little umbrella, little drinks with little umbrellas. <laughs> the only thing you need to shield yourself from is the sun, maybe. I don't know. You're in a war. And the, the sooner we kind of grasp our, ourselves, it will just explain a lot of what's going on. Isn't it true that sin and celebration always begin in the mind? What we think about something is vital to how we're going to interact with it, how we're going to act with it, and react to it. So doctrine, which doctrine simply means a set of teaching. Everyone lives by a certain doctrine. Doctrine is so incredibly vital because what you avoid and feel warned to avoid and what you celebrate begin in your mind. Paul is coming back to warning against false teachers. Where did he start teaching about false teachers in this letter? Chapter 1. Why? Because it's a church in crisis. The truth's been replaced by lies. This is urgent. Paul's not super flowery with his speech. He's really close buddies with 1 Timothy, but there's not a lot of personal stuff. Why? Because he's urgent. He's just hammering these truths home. This, this is so vital. So right on the heels of this mystery of godliness, Paul says some are going to leave this teaching. They're going to depart from it. Now, I won't say too much about this, but I have to mention the Cowboy Niner game because some of you are thinking just about the Cowboy Niner game right now. Will's leaving right now to get the nachos ready for the Cowboy Niner game, and I'm going to come over, Will, and invade your house. I hope the nachos are good. Um, Dak Prescott is the quarterback for America's team, the Dallas Cowboys, in case you wondered. Imagine for a second. Imagine Dak Prescott leading the troops down the field for his Cowboys, the only team he's ever played for, and all of a sudden, goes to commercial, we come back, and Garoppolo's sitting on the sidelines, and Dak has a Niners jersey on it. Eli just threw up a tiny bit in his mouth. He's like, never! That could never happen! If we ever saw Dak leading the Niners troops down the field, A, they might have a better chance, but B... We would just flip out. We go, no way. That would never happen. In war terms, what do we call this? That's a traitor. That's a defector, right? It's not just that Dak would take off his jersey, take off his pads, go into the locker room, or sit on the sidelines, or go up in the stands and eat some popcorn. That would be one thing. But to take off a jersey, pull on the opponent's jersey, and suddenly be fighting against the other team that you just had professed loyalty to, that's huge. That stirs up different kinds of emotions, doesn't it? Some of your Niner fans are like, never. Like, we would never allow him to do that. Good. Well, how about the Lord that you love? The Lord that you have professed love for, but now you find yourself working directly opposed to the things that he taught. That's what a false teacher who names the name of Jesus Christ is doing. Some people are shocked that professing Christians in the church are teaching false doctrine. You shouldn't be. You should never be shocked by that. The scriptures are actually chock full of this, and it, it's chock full of, of teaching it. Do you ever notice why you don't, you don't meet many um, Ananiases and Sapphiras in your life? Like, do you have any buddies named that? There's a lot of biblical names out there, but people don't name their kids Ananias or Sapphira. Why? Who were they? Acts chapter 6. Remember? Traitors! Man, they had their own version of godliness. 
Their path to godliness was, wow, people are coming up, kind of getting praise from man about selling big chunks of property, giving it to the Lord. We want in on this. God, in that instance, showed them the cost, the wages of sin immediately. Death on the spot. So those are Christians in the church being used by Satan to do something totally different than what's going on. Do you see that uh, what's behind our behavior is vital? Right? Someone could have come and done that five minutes earlier. And it was just like this joyful, self-sacrificial, man, I, I don't need stuff anymore. I want to bless people in our church who don't have anything. And the next person comes up, does the exact same thing, says the same thing. It's a totally different result. How about Peter? Peter was once used by Satan to speak exactly opposite of what Jesus was saying. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He's saying that to Peter. Jesus warned that savage wolves would come in among the sheep and say twisted things. Paul had a version of that, uh, or, or um, that's, that's, actually, he, uh, that's actually Paul, sorry, saying that, warning in Acts 20 that this would happen in Ephesus. That's happening in Ephesus right now. Remember, that's where this letter is written to. Here's Jesus' words, Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There's an inner life and an outer life going on. So though people are responsible for departing, there is a sense that these individuals, these false teachers, are taken captive by sin. Taken captive by sin is familiar to us, right? We know that terminology. But I think sometimes we think of sin as this impersonal force. And instead, I would submit to you that these are spiritual beings. We go back to verse 1 again. Some will depart from the faith. How? By, here it is, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What are spirits and demons? Not an impersonal force. Those are spiritual beings who've rebelled against God. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Told you we were at war, right? Some of us, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so to me, I'm like, let's play, party, and have a good time. Let's ignore some of the bad stuff. I, I do sort of resonate with that. If we sort of stick our head in the sand, well, war sounds scary. It's about to get a lot scarier. <laughs> when you read the scriptures, when you open the scriptures, say, God, show me the truth of what's really going on. What we read about are principalities and gods and rulers and demons. These are beings behind the false teachers and their destructive ideology. Paul is super clear how people got picked off. He says they devoted themselves to the teachings of demons, to deceitful spirits. They became captive by this. What does it mean to devote yourself but to pay attention to? To align yourself with a certain way of living. People have a way about them. Jesus had a way about him. So by devoting themselves, by aligning themselves, by paying attention to themselves, they have devoted themselves, aligned themselves with demons. Through, who were the conduits? Habitual liars who've lost their capacity to truth. You know that you just keep lying, 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 lying. There's an eventually where you really believe the lie. Some of you have friends, family, neighbors. You've shared the gospel. You've talked. You've, you've talked about a certain issue, and you go, boy, they are so convinced of this lie 
They're, like, they're, they're 100% convinced it really is true. That's a seared conscience. So let me walk you through a couple of thoughts. Someone might think they are just opening themselves up to new ideas, when in reality they are departing the sound doctrine, the way, the allegiance to Jesus Christ, and they are actually aligning themselves, they're devoting themselves to a demon. Not just opening yourself up to new ideas. People might think they're just a fan of the outrageous and combative podcast that they love to listen to because he says things in such a fresh way. Calls himself a Christian. What's actually happening is he's leaving the allegiance of his Lord and Savior, and he's pulling off a jersey, he's devoting himself to a new doctrine, an unsound doctrine. People think they're just being open-minded and learning a new progressive way of Christianity. Still Christian. We still talk a lot about Jesus. We refer to the Bible. That's our only holy book. When in reality, they've left the sound way and gone to the unsound way. You know, players on a football field today will be the actual people pulling off moves. But in a very real sense, the coaching staff and their system are what's behind the entire game. Everything you see on a football field today will be, will be uh, conducted, again, by, by actual individuals. But there will be unseen people. They'll give little shots of them. But there will be unseen people and systems that are being worked on the field. Whose will is being enacted? The coach. The coaching staff. That's who. So behind every great team, think about people like John Madden, Bill Belichick, Tom Landry. Every one of those coaches built dynasties, winning dynasties over the course of years, in some cases, Tom Landry, decades, and Bill Belichick, actually. So think about this. Players came and went. Individual people showed up on the scene, went away. Injury, traded, retired. And yet the same system, the same mode, the same way, the same doctrine is being enacted on the field. So it is with Satan and his demons. Like a coaching staff carrying out their will through others working a system. Does that make sense? This is why generationally you'll see, you'll see patterns. You'll see the same things going on. The individual players will change. But there will be a generational system. There will be a generational way of rebellion. There will be a generational wickedness that's going on. Why? Because there are unseen beings, spiritual beings, behind the seen people enacting the move. Let me give you a really concrete example of lies that come from demonic beings, but through human beings. Okay? That's what I'm suggesting is in this text. There are many churches in our area who right now are absolutely draping themselves in the rainbow flag. They are leading with this message. It is all over the outside of their church. What they are leading with as a church is a message of approval and affirmation of a lifestyle that is sinful and unbiblical. They are leading the way with that message. 
They are showing their true colors very, very blatantly on their website, on their property. They have compromised and devoted themselves to an agenda and spiritual beings that are far more sinister than the human people that they've aligned with are at work through them. As we, if we look to the scriptures, what are rainbows to preach? A rainbow is to preach humble repentance. See Noah. A rainbow is put in the sky to say this. God will never again wipe out the entire planet as our sin so greatly deserves. So let me suggest to you this point. When rainbows preach pride, God is opposed. When rainbows preach pride, God is opposed. I can say that really definitively. Why? Because God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is only the current variety of this, right? Some of you lived through the 60s. What are the 60s? The sexual revolution. Has sexual rebellion against God always been a tactic of demonic forces to lead even Christians, like people in the church, away from God? Absolutely. If and when this passes, there will be another strain for my children to contend with. But there will be a common thread of a system of saying sexual temptation. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go after people with, with that. Listen to how Paul clarifies the combat, and he provides the antidote to being taken captive by, de- by demonic deception. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, catch this, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when when your obedience is complete. Evil forces, principalities, little g gods, demons, are behind false teachers and destructive ideologies. But we are equipped with divine force. And remember that light always wins out over darkness? Always. This is why we can run forward in the battle. This is why we don't have to fear. Greater is he who is in you, Christian, than he who's in the world. You're prevented from being taken captive by taking captive every thought. Just submitting it to the obedience of Christ. This takes us to our next point. So combat lies by celebrating truth. Combat lies by celebrating truth. Paul doesn't just call out the liars or the source of the lies, which he does in this passage. But he also calls out the specifics of their unsound doctrine. Look at verse 3. The liars who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Do you know that human beings are incredibly good at sinning? We're so industrious at it. We're so creative at it. 
It's really incredible. Finding new ways to rebel. Let me give you two different varieties. One is the self-indulgent spirit of Solomon. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that says this, anything I wanted, I would take. Most powerful person in the land at the time. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labor. That's called licentiousness. That's a, fam- a fancy word for that. And we are living in Babylon. We are living where people just can do this. They have the power. They have like everything, and they have denied themselves nothing. The hunt and lust for more is a temptation for most of us. But at the other end of the spectrum is self-denial, the ascetic lifestyle. Commentator Barclay says, in every generation, people will arise who are stricter than God. You ever, know, you ever meet someone who's stricter than God? You're like, man, you're really uptight. There's a lot of rules. Ascetic is another way of saying austere, abstinent, non-indulgent, self-disciplined, frugal, rigorous, strict, severe, celibate. If one is the spirit of Solomon, this is the spirit of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were legalists who produced other legalists. Remember, whoever's teaching you devote yourselves to, you're going to become just like them. Let me show you this example. Thanks, Brett. Apologize for all the popping and stuff going on. I'm going to leave the other one on in case this one fails. Brother? This was my old pastor at Los Gatos Christian Church when I was growing up. Daniel Henderson, he has a prayer ministry now, but I love this little simple... um... There we go. You guys hear me okay? All right. Legalism is creating false standards of spirituality, then judging others by those standards. Just a simple working definition of legalism. You know, legalism's all the rage. I think it always has been. And legalism is always devastating to the self and to others. You hurt yourself because you reassure your own soul that you are good and not in need, when in fact you are rushing headlong to death. Self-righteousness is no righteousness at all. That little self-checklist, that little mental checklist that you have, where people ask, and this is a funny thing we, we, we say a lot, how are you? I'm good. What's going on? It's all good. We sort of flippantly toss that out, right? That little mental checklist that says you're good, you're not. So that's how it hurts ourselves. How does it hurt others? Well, by heaping burdens on them that are impossible to carry out, And often, in fact, the very things you're telling them to abstain from, withdraw from, don't engage in, are actually gifts given by the Father. And you're withholding from them. They're not to be carried around. They're not to be set on a shelf and gawked at. Remember Jesus with the Pharisees? You tie up heavy loads, but you refuse to lift a little finger to help with any kind of a burden. What are the heavy loads? The heavy loads are abstain from these good gifts that God meant to be for you. His, ref- his repeated refrain in Matthew 23 and elsewhere is, woe to you. Woe, as in you're certainly going to die. You're in a terrible state. What was he addressing? Legalism. The spirit of the Pharisees carries on. Jesus had a whole different way of talking about things. The greatest among you shall be your servant. You want to be first place? Take last place. 
You want to find your life? Lose it in me. And those are so powerful. Freedom is never found, ever, in liberalism or in legalism, but only in Jesus. Simply put, you aren't good because of what you give up. Lent, anyone? I mean, that's some of the ways that Lent has gone off the rails. I better give up something big this year. I've been a bad boy. That's not really how it works. That's transactional. So you aren't good because of what you give up or what you abstain from. In fact, your absolute best, hear me, me at my absolute best is absolutely sin-stained and wicked. That's either devastating or really freeing because it's like, well, then God, you must have provided a different way. I can't work my way to grace. All striving apart from the gospel is jogging in quicksand. I've never tried it, but it can't be fun. Here's some non-biblical Christian varieties. I think that they abound. Let me step on some toes. I know, I know we have many, many who are, they describe themselves as ex-Catholics, recovering Catholics. Catholic Church teaches all about men and women taking a vow of celibacy. Marriage in the leadership ranks. I've not been raised Catholic, so I don't know this intimately. I have to study on this kind of thing. But marriage has, has this cloud around it, and it's withdrawn. Now, ideally, I think this is meant to be willingly, that people willingly relinquish their right to marry so they can be married, as it were, to God. The Bible speaks of celibacy as a gift. But the normative that we see in Scripture is actually something totally different than what the Catholic Church tends to require. Marriage is a gift to be enjoyed. And it's, me- it's better to marry than to burn with lust toward other people. I don't have to go into any detail whatsoever to see massive fallout from sort of human tradition enforced celibacy and burning with lust in some really wicked, perverted, destructive, generational ways. There are spiritual beings using human actors, human compliant agents, to carry out devastating wickedness. How about the Eastern religion? Eastern religions almost all teach some form of physical world equals evil, spiritual world equals good. Therefore, the physical world must be mastered or denied. Jesus blows that apart. Sadly, some of this has seeped into Christian thinking. But this never works, does it? You want proof? All right. You don't have to raise your hand, but think about your New Year's resolution. Some of you said, do not handle blank. How's it going? Somebody said, do not eat that blank. How's it going? We're only 16 days in. Some of you have, do not touch that blank. You fill in the blank, you do the math. Religions or religious self-righteousness is sort of one whole giant category. Here's what's fascinating. Non-religious people, agnostics, atheists, whatever they might call themselves, others, none whatever they might check on the religious spectrum. They think, oh, you, got, you religious people just have these huge hang-ups with that. Let me give you one little snippet of a non-religious version of self-righteousness legalism. Okay, here it is. A progressive intellectual person who finds superiority in their sort of Ivy League-informed voting practices 
their carbon footprint number, and their vegan diet. Ring a bell with anyone you might know? And woe to those who disagree with them on any one of those three points. Man, there's, there's some serious evangelism going on around these kinds of ideas and topics. People who have devoted themselves to a bigger cause. Why? We're all made to worship. We're all made to devote ourselves to a bigger cause. But it can get skewed. What's the biblical thinking on this? Colossians chapter 2. What a great passage. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Great question. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Doesn't that shed such light on it, you guys? Incredible. Verse 23, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And that one passage explains so much of my internal world and the world around me. Leonard Sweet says this, living by a list of laws is consoling, but a lazy way to go through life. Paul in this passage offers two sound doctrines that destroy legalism. Just obliterate it. Here it is. Ready? God created. God creates good. That's it. My kids know this well because we, we study this kind of thing. God created all things and all creation is very good. That's right. Just lock that in your brain. God created this. It's good. So God created means that what you see is not an accident. Novel idea. And God creates good. So what you see and have is not evil, not marriage, nor food, nor your body. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4 says, For God created, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Here's this principle in a sentence. We worship God by receiving, enjoying, and sharing his good gifts, not by abstaining from gifts or idolizing the gift. Is it possible to make an idol out of relationships and love? Yeah. Is it possible to do that with food, drink, the pleasures of the stomach? Yep. So that is us celebrating truth. We celebrate truth when we receive, enjoy, and share the good gifts of God. Jesus was not influenced by evil spirits, but by the Holy Spirit. He showed us the way by openly challenging false teachers and exposing them, shining the light of truth on their air. He did this for a week in the temple before he was crucified. He goes there and just teaches daily. Remember how over and over again he said, you have heard it say, but I say to you, you've heard it said is from the teachers. They've got it all wrong. Jesus is the better way, and the better way leads to life. So devote yourself, link up, pay attention to him. You will pay attention to someone or something. 
So not only was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit of truth and life, but he opens the way for us to be filled with that same Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Sit with that. That's powerful. He is the one who convicts you of sin, whether gluttony or lust or self-righteousness or self-denial. And he is the one who enables us to receive the good gifts that God has given so we can enjoy the gifts in him. So combat lies by celebrating truth every day. Look at verse 4 again. Whenever I see everything and nothing next to each other, it's fun to pay attention to it. For everything created by God is good. How much is everything? A lot. Like everything. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Wow. Every single thing that God created is good. And we are ingenious. Again, human beings are ingenious and rebellious. I mean, and industrious and creative at, at messing that one up. We can find all kinds of things to, to mess it up. But everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This is where the I do comes in. I do is the most prominent thing on our screen today, and that's on purpose. What does marriage and eating have in common? Both are so incredibly daily. They never stop. Once you get married, you're like, yeah, I'm married. And tomorrow I'll be married. And the next day I'll be married. Part of the challenge of this is it can become routine. Many, many marriages are struggling right now because they've just allowed it to become routine. And when the victory is won on one day, you think, I've got to do this again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Forever. A long time. It can feel really discouraging. How about food? You win your battle with food one day, sweet. It's not even daily. It's like a few hours later. You're like, man, here's that battle again. Faces me again. I wake up, same thing, over and over and over again. So let's take marriage first. Marriage is created by God, therefore it's good. I said this at their wedding. I said marriage is a gift instituted by God. He set this thing up. This isn't made by the lower courts and human thinking and tradition and, well, it's good for the... None of that. God created it. Therefore, it's good. And he blessed it on top of that. But we celebrate it. Wives in the room, let me ask you a real question with a couple of real responses. How does your husband continue to say, I do, long after the marriage vow? Whether in word or action or attitude. What are some of the ways that your husband has continued to say, I do, long after saying it on your wedding day? Any thoughts on that? Les, you're not a wife. I'm asking the wives. I'll, I'll hear from you since the wives aren't raising their hand. Go, Elizabeth. Yeah, right. Serving around the house. Les, what do you got? I'm not going to exclude you. Washing the dishes. Sharon, go. Just acknowledging, yeah, all that. Husbands, you're welcome. We, we all need help with this. Ruth, one more. Oh, so good. Yeah. 
So what's the hot air balloon? The hot air balloon is that there are some giant landmark ways that we say, I love you, and they're big, and they're big and professed. That might be really public. I drove by, it was really cute, I drove by this under, you know, uh, overpass and said, I love you with some initials. I'm like, that's, that's really cool, right? Those are, the, those are the, 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 the big things. But pumping gas, just going, you know what, I'm not going to return my wife's car to her empty. I'm going to go pump it right now. I'd better get home, but I'm just going to do this. Just little acts of service, right? I remember my wife's love language changed once we started getting two kids at a time. She's like, whatever the love language is where you do a ton of work at home and help me. Okay, <laughs> I'll be a student of my wife. That's, that's her new love language. I'll do it. It was dishes. It was just all the work, right? There's just a ton of work to do. That's what you do. So in big and small ways, we continue to say, I do. We combat the lie that somehow we're close to God if we give up, on, if we give up marriage and say, no, I'm not going to take that one. We, we combat that lie by celebrating the gift of marriage. Single people pray long and hard. God, please help me out of my loneliness. Provide for me a spouse. Then he does. He answers them. The answer is your spouse's name. So receive that gift every day moving forward. little whispered, I do. All right. Uh, Food. Food is good. Amen? Yeah. Food is amazing. Can food become an idol in all kinds of messed up ways? Of course. But food is good. God created it. Here's an idea. I went out to breakfast with my wife this week. We haven't done that in a really long time with the Bills and had Eggs Benedict. When I go out, I eat Eggs Benedict because I can make all kinds of other stuff. Becky's an incredible cook. But hollandaise sauce kind of a pain to make. But I had an amazing Eggs Benedict. Here's a little idea for you. Okay? Here's a little way to say I do in terms of like just I receive the gift. This is where praying before your meal comes in. Okay? Here's an idea. I do this regularly. Bow your head and have your, have your plate right here. Close your eyes and bow your head. And then just smell. Stop and smell your food. Like for a good five or ten seconds, just do this. I regularly at home. What's dad doing? He's smelling his food. Why is dad smelling his food? You know what I'm doing? I am am reorienting. I I would be very prone to making food an an idol. I am prone. I don't don't want to say I I would be. (laughs) I somehow conquered that. I smell that and say, God, this is a good gift for me. We regularly say this around our home. There are people who would kill to have a hot meal like we're having right now. Let the steam hit your face. So the smell. Then open your eyes. Open your eyes and see. Isn't this plated really well? Some of you care about this stuff. I think this looks really cool. I mean, someone plated this. Someone worked hard at doing this. And just the, the layout, the way it's there, the, the colors, the variety, the texture. I could have just given us a little pill with calories. Every day. That's how you do it. Eat the pill with calories. Done. Instead, there's this rich bread. I'm getting, I'm getting nachos later on at the Goulding's house. I can't wait. And Will's working up a storm over there. It's going to be amazing. All right. Now, look around. Leave your eyes open. Look around who you're eating with. Feast on the friendship that you're there with, enjoying the meal. If you're ever eating alone and you're used to eating with a lot of people, I'm used to eating with a lot of people. Whenever I'm alone, it's actually really profound and powerful. I, I, I go, man, I... I, I I resonate with people who, who don't have a lot of people to eat with. I also can't wait to eat with the loud, spilling, sometimes arguing, often arguing, things that happen at my dinner table. So just, just feast on, on that. How does the word inform our mealtime? It said it's made holy by the word and prayer. We can dwell well in the house of God because we can know how to handle marriage, all things marriage, and food, and a whole litany of other things. Why? Because God's told us in his word. 
Fences and freedom, remember? Where God hasn't made it a clear, hard, and fast fence, there's some freedom there. So go to Romans 14, disputable matters. How do we handle when some, one person says, well, well, drinking's a sin. Well, I think we're free to drink. Well, the scriptures even teach us about that. They talk about those, right? How to deal with the weaker brother, the weaker sister who, who, who sees it that way. I'm going to wrap with this. Band, why don't you come on up? I'm going to give you four quick bullet points. These, these scriptures are all in, under the I do in your, in your notes, so you can just listen. But these are the way that the word can change your meal time. If your meal saying grace is always, God, thank you for the food. Bless the hands that prepared it. Bless our bodies. Amen. If it just feels rote and routine, expand it by taking what you've read in the scriptures that day and seeing, does that inform anything about the physical world, about where it's coming from, all of that? Here's a couple of ideas. Ephesians 5.20. Since we owe everything we have to God's grace, to his free and unmerited favor, it's appropriate to thank him. And meals provide an amazing time to hit pause on what's going on and reflect. How about Romans 11.36? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God, all these things that provided this meal to be sitting here, they're from you. Celebrate. Celebrate that truth. How about 1 Corinthians 10.31? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God, help this to be an act of worship of you, not worship of the food. And this last one, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, may, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. God, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the gift of food. God, thank you for the gift of spiritual discipline which in season says we abstain from coming together with our spouse. We abstain from certain kinds of food so that we can focus on eternal matters. God, there's freedom for all of that. Teach us. God, help us to instruct one another, to encourage one another, to be examples to one another. But God, we are following you. So God, I pray that you directly would um, instruct us how to enjoy without worshiping the good gifts you've given to us. In your name we pray, amen.